0: Welcome along, Cillian Boggan with you and happy to say that I'm now joined by the Ballymont Kickens player, Ted Furman. Ted, how are you? I'm not too bad, I'm not too bad. We might have
1: to change that uh, team though. <laughs> <laughs> I've, um, I recently transferred in the, last December. Oh really? To what club? Uh, to Oliver Blunkett's. And how are you finding things over there? Yeah, no, they're going, they're going really well. Um, I'm enjoying playing football and just it's it was a lot more convenient for me being closer to home and stuff with, with two young kids. So um, that was one of the main reasons that I, I moved across.
0: Was it a bit of a challenge to make that move? I know, like, you know, getting to an All-Ireland final with Ballymone Kickhams in 2013, just marginally losing out. You also won a Leinster Championship that year. I imagine it was probably a difficult decision for you.
1: Absolutely. It, it's, to be honest, it was probably one of the toughest decisions I've, I've ever had to make in, in life. Do you know what I mean? Um, when it comes when it comes to sport, um, like Ballymun has, has been and will be always be my club. Like in, I've, I've been playing with Ballymun. I was playing with Ballymun since I was eight years of age so and come last december for the first time i think i realized for the first time in over 20 years i, w- I was pulling in somewhere else and into a different car park getting ready for pre-season like so think, what what's the emotions like when you're let's say your first training session um i think you, you as as a person and me personally i just want to obviously add a point to prove to to people in the club in in plunkett's and mm-hmm. obviously for myself so you, you get nervous, even now still at 33 now, you still get nervous before for something big. And and that for me was, I had a lot of nerves that first night walking into the dressing room and stuff.
0: If Ronaldo scores a goal against Real Madrid, I'd say there will be a lot of speculation about how he celebrates, if he does it all. If you score a goal against Ballymont-Kickham, do you have a celebration plan? <laughs> uh, no, probably just... Cover my head and hopefully I don't get a box out of someone. Um, I, I don't think I'd celebrate, to be honest. Over the last 10 years, Dublin football has become this sort of ruthless machine in world sport. It might be easy for people to forget that things weren't always like that. In 2010, Dublin had won an All Ireland Championship since 1995, and you were a starter on the under 21 team that won a first All Ireland Championship since Alan Brogan's days in 2003. Was there a feeling at that time that there was a shift happening in Dublin football? Um, I think I think as as a
1: group, we just put our head down and and we knew. I I don't think we had the best team around, but what we done was we worked hard and we trusted the process that we had. Like, and I think if you look at the teams that we had even before the year we won it, we probably had better better footballers on the team, but collectively we, we probably went weren't good enough when it when it came to the big day the, the big occasion. But um I think when you look at the shift in, in the mentality was when that when the, that management team. So Jim, Jim had come in and changed the way the players thought, like the way they looked at the challenges that lay ahead. And I think that's what the big shift momentum was for for underage in particular for Dublin football. Like
0: so as you said, Jim Gavin was the manager of that All-Ireland yeah. winning under-21 team. What did Jim Gavin bring in? What type of manager was he? Because at that time, he probably didn't have all that much experience managing at inter level. level. Uh, would you believe Jim was actually involved in the 2003
1: All-Ireland winning team?
0: Oh, right.
1: Yeah. So his, Jim, his coaching career
0: went all, all the way that back far.
1: Yeah. So as far as I know, Jim was involved as, as a selector with that team. And then his first year, he came in in 2008, uh, first year twenty ones, 21, and we lost to, we actually lost to Kildare that year, and they went on to, and I think they lost to Kerry in an all-around final. The following year, we won Lencer and lost an all-around semi-final in 2009 to Cork, who we went on eventually went on to win it. And then in 2010, we eventually got over the line. But I think over the three years with Jim, and Jim was, the, that consistent figure there at the top of the table like but it, it was just as, the way he speaks and the way he commands respect and stuff and obviously given the nature of his job as, as a as a pilot and stuff with the, the air force he was just cool you know he was calm and he always spoke with authority and when he spoke you listened to him you know and um, so even when the pressure was on he was always still cool and I think that transfers to the players then, you know, when, when you don't see someone running up and down the sideline screaming at you, like, I think that brings it that added calmness to as you as a player on the pitch.
0: It must be difficult to stay that calm on the sideline because, like, you know, people who have been involved in GA will know when those matches go down to the wire and there's a point in it right way. like, you're screaming inside. A lot of people tend to scream on the outside as well, but Jim does seem to have this remarkable ability to just remain calm. Yeah, well,
1: you'd love to know what's going on inside his head at times, like because <laughs> when you see some of the games that have even happened, transpired over the last couple of years since then, like, and some of the nailboard is you, me as a fan, and you as a fan looking at them, you're screaming, whether you're in the stadium or you're at home and the telly, and your own heart is palpitating, you're you're screaming at the telly, telling someone to kick or pass, and he just looks calm, and I I think that's just. The training that he's done as in the Air Force, you know, and um, you can't teach that, you know, that calmness under pressure and stuff. Um, you now you can help people and you can give people tips and guidelines, but that comes down to that individual then, how they're going to handle that pressure, you know.
0: I guess Jim's point of view is you probably reach a stage in a match where you are the manager and you can't change what's happening on the pitch and you have to have that trust and faith in your players too be able
1: to affect that change? Well, that's it. And if you ever see any interviews that Jim has done, that's what he talks about. He talks about that process. You know, once once the 15 lads cross the white line or 20 lads, wherever it is on, on a match day, he can't do any more for you. Like, he, all the work is done offside and um, at the end of the day, it comes down to how are you going to handle that pressure? What are you going to do in that moment in time but the thing is, you have to remember—it's all about reputation. Like, so when you're training, you're at, and you're doing your your own work offside. It's all repeating the same movements. So it's like a cutback or it's a loop, and if you look at Dean Rock, does the loop every single time because he does that movement two hundred times a night, like you know. And that's that's what it's all about, and that's what you teach is repetition,
0: repetition, repetition. When you look at some of the household names in of Dublin football in the two thousand and tens, and some of them have eight All Ireland medals, some of them have five plus. Go back to the household names of the two thousands, Paddy Christie and the likes, and Mm. you know it's it's almost unfortunate that you're nearly seeing them appear on lists of the greatest ever footballers never to win an All Ireland. I imagine that doesn't change your view of Paddy Christie.
1: Absolutely not. You know, and and Paddy was a mentor of mine. From when I was eight, when I first joined Baddy Kickers and up, and up until recently, even now, Paddy still will be a mentor of mine. Like, and like in my eyes and a lot of lads' eyes, he's a, he's a legend. Like, and it doesn't matter uh, whether he has zero all orange or ten all orange, he's still the same man. He's still that legend that we grew up with. And I think Philly, Philly said it before, like, even though Paddy hasn't got an all in a medal in his back pocket. He, he's associated with about 20 of them. You know? Yeah, yeah. And that's that's the most important thing when it comes to Paddy is that his legacy is the players that he's moulded into these machines.
0: Like. So when Paddy Christie, the cult Dublin footballer, comes in and takes over a group of Ballymont kickers under eights, was that a daunting experience? Um, no. I, like, again, I wouldn't have known it. When
1: I first sat with Paddy Wooden, I wouldn't have known who Paddy Christie was. Like, uh, it was my man brought me up. The team was already formed a couple of weeks, and she just went in and started playing football. And and you know, like at, at seven, eight years of age, I wasn't really that good. Like, and I was I was already two years younger than everyone else, so I kind of lied about my age for for the first couple of years. Um, but again, what Paddy done was he just he helped you. Like you know, he never never turned you away. And if you wanted to play football, he he, he helped you play football, and he taught us how to play football, and that and that was the consistency with Paddy that he was always there and at this time he was highly involved with playing Dublin football you know And but no matter what he was still with us every week or if he couldn't be there there was always someone there for us to play football and I think that was the most important thing for us um, was being able to play football.
0: It just seems the loyalty of Paddy Christie is incredible I mean you know with him with all of his intercounty credentials you would have think he would have been drafted into the Ballymone senior side but he took over this group of under-8s and stayed with them right through the age grades all the way up to under-21. Yeah, well, he,
1: he's done that twice in, in his in his lifetime. You know, he he done it with the team that I was involved in. And then when we, eventually, when we finished up after winning um, two 21 titles back-to-back, uh, he went back again and started again with an under-10s team. And that team was actually better than everyone. one. <laughs>
0: And like, what what is it? Do, do you think he just enjoys this sort of building from the ground up, or is he one of the few people in the club who will actually take it to that sort of consistent extent? Well, I, I think it's a bit mixture about there. Like you know,
1: it's that consistency. As I said, that consistency he has, and like, I think with Paddy, and I, I again, I can't say for his, his own mindset, but from the outside looking in, and from knowing him, I'd say it's being able to go back and shape a person. You know, he can, he can shape the way of football, like their, their mental ability, you know, and and, and that's the, the joyous thing about Paddy and his nature and the way he is and obviously being um a school, a school teacher and a principal now, like, you know, he can understand kids and he can get, get the best out of kids because he can relate with them. You know, so instead of coming into a team that's like already 70 and 18 or in their in 20s, he's able to help them at a younger age and develop them mentally and mature them a lot more.
0: Paddy's value to Ballymount Kickhams has never been in doubt. But I think, like, people maybe with the height that Ballymount Kickhams reached don't realise how bad things actually were. Like, Frank McCaffrey passed away and Ballymount Kickhams lost their entire hurling section and a lot of their catchment area. So when a 19, 20-year-old Patty Christie steps up and decided to do something about this. Like things were pretty bad. Yeah, well, again, that that's this is all along
1: before my time, you know. And um, I can only give my opinion on on what I've seen with Banny Even when I first began playing with Banny and growing up, we we didn't have the players, we didn't have the numbers, we didn't have the setup, you know, and, and even our senior side at that stage, I think they'd got to and uh, they always dare there and like when you had the likes of Paddy, you had Ian Robertson, you had Davey Bourne as well involved. And these three, these three men were playing with Dublin at the time, you know. And then you had the likes of Darren Deucey and Stephen Connon, again, club men that always gave that water heart in the sleeve when it came wearing the wearing the Ballymun jersey. And so, us growing up as kids, watching these lads drink, and no matter how bad they were, and, and even I think in '98, was it '98 or '99, they got to a club semi-final and lost to Bridges I think it was or maybe it was no maybe it was early 2000s and they got to a club Dublin semi-final. I remember going down to watch it in Parnell Park and I was ho- dreaming about playing senior for Banny Moon one day you know and it, it was because watching these and I think when when we had because we had Paddy as a manager and he was always there and he was we always dreamt about playing with Paddy you know playing a playing the match with him and talking out wearing the jersey with him and Again, that's why I think a lot of us stuck around because he was there. You know, when, when you think about when we won the 21s championship, and then I think two years later, we win the Dublin Senior Championship. 12 of the team that had started against the Fiend in the first uh, 21s championship started the senior final against Kimmel Cocos two years later. Like that in itself is incredible when you can get 12 lads all the way through and, and sticking together, you know, and even the best of clubs in the, con- in the country can't, can't do that. Like, you know, where, where you have a core group of, of players that stick together all the way through.
0: That seems to be basically a lesson that if you can do the simple things right, you know, you can get the results. The simple things really are the simple things. I remember uh, listening to Paddy talk and just making sure all the players were kitted out in Ballymun gear was one yeah. of the priorities. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, and... Um, the funny thing is when it, when you
1: when you say simple things for what's simple for me and you might be simple for uh, for what's simple for someone else could be completely different um what paddy tried to do was create a culture you know create a want wanting to play for the club and that sense of entitlement so again having the right gear having the right kick, whether it's tracksuits, whether it was bags, boots, gloves—you know—we were all the same because we all wanted to be a part of one one unit, and, th- and that's basically what we were. You know, it was was one core group, one unit that all rode together, and and that's how we achieved success. Now, our success growing up wasn't winning titles or anything like that. It was literally just staying together and, and being it being a team, and and constantly being able to go back to the well and and get get to these finals and semifinals and stuff.
0: I remember watching the RTE documentary Passing It On. And one of the sort of lines, if you like, that stuck out for me was that the whole team, Ballymon Kickham's kids, were called scumbags by grown adults in the GA. That seems like a pretty damning indictment of where things were in Dublin GA at the time. Uh, yeah, no, like, you, you, you still, I, I
1: think the abuse that we got as grown up as kids um, was, was, horrendous like you know I think being uh, as people class it a disadvantage area like but if you ask any of us we never thought looked at it as a disadvantage area we we loved growing up in money I love growing up in money one you know um I want I want my kids playing for body one I want my kids you know if they grew up in Maddie yeah I'd be happy with that as well you know um but like the nature that of the abuse that we suffered growing up was 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 surreal at times, you know, because again, it was grown adults that were thrown as abuse it's, you. know it's not even the kids, like and, and the kids are listening to the parents or whoever's on the sidelines. So yeah, you're getting it from them as well. And um any any slang that you could think of was, was thrown at us growing up, like you know, and and sometimes um maybe it was because we were, we were a better team and we we like to play physical, and I think when, when you can do that, when you can mix fo- football and phys- that physical aspect of it as well, p- and people don't like it, you know. How did you deal with the abuse? Um, I, I thought I dealt with it all right. And it's only later on in life that I realised, um, yeah, maybe you didn't really deal with it, you know. But um, I think in, in the heat of the moment, um, I tried not to react. And I think growing up, that was difficult for me because I, I looked at it. Um, I got, I kind of got two aspects of it. You know, I, I got the, obviously the, the, the abuse for being from Banny Moon and then I got the, the racial slurs in as well because of, of that skin tone that I had, you know, and, and that that for me was difficult and that was difficult for me to understand why someone would do that, you know. And again, it came back to Paddy and, and my, my mother and all who kind of helped me under, not understand, but helped me deal with it. And then that when it did happen, try not to react and yeah i'd say six times out of ten i didn't didn't react to it
0: which which is all right you know so those four times out of ten that you did react and in terms of developing the skills around sort of coping with that and maybe not reacting did you find that you developed them over time or was there just an age where you felt it clicked for you no absolutely it developed
1: over time you know, and because even in this age, it's still happening. So you still, you still have to have that that com- compassionate ability to kind of cope with it, and you have to be able to handle it. You know, and and those, those coping mechanisms that I've put in place have come over time. And it, it's just nothing, there's no quick fix when it comes to this. There's no quick fix to not reacting to someone or even reacting to someone you know and anything my opinion on that is like if if it wasn't for the people that I had around me and if it wasn't for the training that I've done and 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 how to handle these situations I probably would have reacted 9 times out of 10 you know and and that's um but at the same time I I have learned not to be not to let myself down you know because there has been times where I've reacted and probably overreacted and I think that's the nature of the beast at times when, when someone, if someone wants to rape you, abuse you or someone wants to abuse you, you have to accept the consequences from that. And that's, that's in all aspects, you know, and, and if I react to that, I have to accept the consequences of my own actions. And, and that's, that's the most important thing from it. Like you, you have to live with the consequences of that on a daily basis.
0: Despite the fact that you were being the one who was being abused, when you reacted, maybe you had like a moment of satisfaction, but did you find that there was then some regret when you, when you gave it some thought or maybe even looking back on it now? Uh, do I regret anything that I've done? No,
1: absolutely not. Uh, do I condone some of the things that I've done? Absolutely not. But, but at the same time, um, growing up as a person, I, I've always learned to defend for myself. You know, and and never to take a step back. i have never wanted to take a step back from someone. Um. So the thing is, I and I do do the same thing with my kids. If if to stand up for yourself, you know, and I don't condone physical violence or anything like that. But at the same time, uh, you have to be able to cope with it. You have to be able to handle handle situations and it good, bad and indifferent. Um. And yeah, like there has been times where I, I have really overreacted and, and do a it afterwards. Um, no, I, I don't regret what I've done, but at the same time, if the same situation arose now, I would handle it much more differently.
0: Did you find the racial abuse towards you was more difficult than the sort of abuse that you got being from Ballymon? Because the abuse you got being from Ballymon was something the whole team could take. But the abuse because of the color of your skin sort of feels directed in, at you as an individual. Oh yeah, that was that was individual
1: abuse, you know. And and like that's I think I, I got as I said, I got both ends of the barrel there. Like, you know, and I think when you were being abused about being where I was from and the team I was playing for, that was fine because that was the team as a whole and we could cope with that as a team. But like no one no one can understand what's going through my mind when I'm racially abused because People can say the, Oh, yeah, I get it. I understand. I feel sorry for you. But at the end of the day, you're never, you're never going to be in my position. You know, you're never going to have to deal with that racial, racial abuse. You know, so uh, as much as people can try and understand and try and help you with that, there has to come a lot of self reflection on that and, and looking at, again, looking, to, trying to be a bigger person. So when you do feel that, that out of pressure of, being different to someone else and and sometimes you overcompensate with that by doing things out out of the norm like you know and um but i think being racially abused and being actually abused to me i I looked at both differently and i probably reacted to both differently
0: is the ga a better place now for players like yourself in terms of Let's say some of the power that the ref might have on the pitch, if there was a case of racial abuse. Um, yes and no. You
1: know, um so, I think the G- the GA is a lot more is a lot more inclusive. Obviously, with, with everyone that has moved to the country over the last couple of years, which is great. You know, and it's great for that inclusion and they're trying to to get these people involved in, in setting up clubs. I know like the likes of the clubs in Blanche and stuff in so Terrell Sound, I think they set one up for, for the refugees, and, and which is fantastic, you know, and it'll encourage a lot more people. And you look at the people all over the country and you see these lads that are coming up and playing for Kildare, uh, Westmead, Derry. It's fantastic to see because give or take t- 10 or 11 years ago, there was no uh, inter-county uh, footballer. Of, of a different et- ethnicity. You know, and, and that's, that's a sad thing, like, considering how many people are, are in the, living in this country and how long they're here.
0: You said yes and no. Why do you feel no to my previous question? Um,
1: Because it, it still can't be policed properly, you know, and that's you know, the most unfortunate thing. You're never going to stop it someone racially abusing or even abusing you. And, the powers that be, be it the referee or or the or the umpires, or whoever it is, can only can only deal with that when they hear it, when they hear it, physically hear it themselves. You know, so you could say something to me, you could whisper something in my ear, racially abuse me, I can't prove that. You know, and and that's that's the most unfortunate thing when it comes to this type of abuse for people. And it's not just in GAA, it's not just in 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 football, it's not just in sport, it's in life in general. You know. That unfor- unfortunately, you can't police this sort of abuse unless it's either physically seen or physically heard.
0: Philly McMahon was talking about encountering effectively sledging about the death of his brother John. This is actually on the inter county stage. Do you think that players used personal abuse as an almost a tactic or a strategy against Ballymon Kickham's players? Because, well, a If you're pissed off, you're probably not thinking about football. And B, if you can get a man sent off, that's a bonus.
1: Um it it just goes to show the nature of the person that's that's willing to do that, you know, and whether do they not back their own ability when it comes to football and wise. And yeah, look, when it comes to sport and and particularly at a high level when you play at a high level, you you want to get any upper hand that you can, like you know, and unfortunately it's the nature of beast when when stuff like that is, is said you no know, uh i i don't condone any of that like and you know, i would i hate people bringing up uh whether it's racial or the loss of um a family member or, or anything like that you know and and the someone that can stoop that low don't deserve to be on a pitch in, in my opinion like you know i'm all for sledging and, and slagging someone whether it's oh yeah, the, the hair or the weight or whatever it is and how many scores you've kicked or missed and whatever, whatever else like that. But when you're, when you're getting personal about someone's family life or the family and stuff, that, that's bringing it to a whole different level.
0: You lived in the flats. Um, the architect Hugh Wallace described the flats as architecturally stunning. I think it's fair to say also there were problems in the area. How did you find growing up in Ballymunn?
1: Um, I, I loved it. Yeah, to be honest, you know, and it, it's like any area, I, every area has it has its bad, bad parts and, and stuff. But um, like I grew up in Thomas McDonough Tower, and, which is the 15th stories. And yeah, you, you would see everything going up, going up and down the, the stairs or the lift or wherever it was. You'd see like, you know, but at the same time, you, you didn't know any different. You know, this is what I was brought up in. So to me, it, it, it doesn't change, you know, because I never lived anywhere else until I was older in life.
0: So when people talk about the demolition of the flats and knocking down the flats of, let's say, a good day for Dublin, a good day for Ballymun, did you feel a little bit differently about that? Yeah, I, mean, I think a lot of people
1: did. I think a lot of people who grew up in, in those flats and grew up in Ballymun would probably feel a lot differently. You know, and and now just going, don't get me wrong. There's going to be people that were delighted at the gone. but I think the majority would say that if, if they had a choice, they'd probably go back into the flat because it was that sense of community that you had in, in the area in those flats. Where wherever uh, flat you were born in, or wherever block you were living in, you had a, there was a community there. You know, and and that's that was the most important thing, and and that's why when I remember. When my one was my mom was actually blown up, and I I was training that weekend, and it was it was sad, you know. And I, I would a hundred percent in a heartbeat move back into the flat tomorrow if, if it was offered. Like
0: during your youth in Ballymon, did you encounter much drug taking? Um, no. You you would see you would see it obviously, but like
1: when you're, you would see people not injecting, I've seen people inject, I've seen people do whatever it is they want to do and stuff. But I think I was fortunate enough growing up that I was very active. Um, so I was always involved in sport, be it football, Gaelic, dancing. I, I'd done everything that I could at a young age and even up until my mid to late 20s. And, and even now I'm still active when it comes to sport and stuff. But uh, particularly when I was growing up underage, I was never really, I was always out doing something. By the time I was getting home, I was late and I was going straight up. So, um, you know, obviously there was times when when you were hanging around, and you do see a lot of it. But to me, it it was it was not the norm. Like no 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 one should ever say that's normal behavior to see because no one should have to see that. But I think growing up in them times, they had nowhere else to go. You know.
0: Is the problem with selling drugs that, you know, for somebody who maybe mightn't have the strongest academic record or the strongest interest in sport, it's actually an attractive lifestyle to get involved in? Um, Yeah, but when you see
1: what else have they got to do, you know, when someone hasn't got the academic background or someone that doesn't have a sport background, where can they go? You know, what services do we offer these people? What can we do to help them, you know? And that's the lack of um, reliability on, on, our, on us as people and the government to provide services for these people, p- provide an, an outlet for these that don't have the, um, the, the intellectual background to get a, a high-paying job or something. So let's teach them, you know? Let's set up a, a youth a youth centre, you know, where they do have this education. And there is plenty of services like that that are trying their best. But again, they're probably under underfunded, And understaffed, so they can only do so much for for you. So, and that's that's the problem. It's not the the flashy lifestyle that these people
0: are living. It's the fact that they've nothing else to do. Was that the problem in in ballymon in terms of the antisocial behaviour that it experienced? Was actually whether it was a lack of government funding, whether you could blame Dublin City Council for this? There hasn't. There actually wasn't the outlet for people to get out of this type of a lifestyle.
1: Um, uh, probably apart from a couple of, couple of weeks a year, you know, where you had your summer camps and stuff like that. Like, um, but other than that, like there wasn't. Yeah, you had your your clubs and stuff. You had your you reach every every week and stuff. But I think is that enough? You need more than one place to go. You know, you need more than one outlet for for young kids, especially. You know, growing up, and you want to if kids want to experience playing basketball, football, tennis, rugby, whatever it is like I, I know growing up in Baltimore, I never really heard of rugby <laughs> until I was a little older in life, you know, and and then you kind of look at an area like I don't and I hate stereo stereotyping a place, but like say Black Rock or somewhere like that, where their first love is rugby, You know, and, and that's that's the difference. That's the different mentality and stuff. And you probably have these places where they can go every week or every couple of nights a week and the train and stuff. Whereas growing up in manimon we had probably one man who took 10 teams and he was training so many people, you know, and that's, and I'm not just
0: talking about Ballymun one I'm just talking about, with, with sports in general in the area. Paddy Christie was telling me recently enough that one of the regrets of his coaching career was that there were guys that he didn't save who he feels that he could have saved, but they just went down the wrong road. I presume he would have been teammates with some of those guys who just couldn't be saved. Yeah, absolutely. You
1: know, there's lads that I know that have that have ended up in jail or are dead, and like uh, whatever else has happened, and and that's the unfortunate thing. And and in life, you you we wish we could save everyone. You know, we want to save everyone, and and sometimes we just we can get caught up with with the wrong group, with the wrong people, and even our own mind we can get caught up in. You know, and that our own mentality when it comes to what we believe about ourselves, or because we're hearing it from other people, and um, unfortunately, that's that's life in general, you know, and that's that's the sad thing about we you every every group of thirty people that we had as a team, and I'd say twenty five of them are still are still involved in, in some aspect. I'd say that's a pretty good return. Like, and I know you put what you and Patty as a person and me as a person,
0: you'll always think about the one that you couldn't say. You know, I want to have a chat with you about your mental health. How's your mental health now? Um,
1: my mental health now is a work in progress. It's like a jigsaw puzzle that you constantly rearranging, trying to put to get back together. Um, I'm I'm doing good though, you know, and that, and that's the most important thing. It's been a, an incredible journey that I've had in the past two years.
0: Um, just getting to where I am now. I suppose that's the case for everyone, isn't it? That, you know, your mental health is a work in progress and probably it's people who don't realise that and don't put in the maintenance to their mental health in the same way they would their physical health that encounter problems.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like when I when I look back to when I attempted suicide two years ago and um, to now and, and look at what I'm doing to my own body now, like, you know, compared to what I was doing now. And you said it there, that maintenance... You know, if you anyone that's driver, drives a car or or rides a motorbike or cycles a bike, if you get a flat tire, if you have a, an, an engine light coming on, you bring it to a garage to get fixed. Do you know what I mean? You you bring it somewhere, and so when it comes to our mental health, there's warning. We all have warning signs there, and we don't talk about it. Do you know what I mean? We we leave them. So, what when that happens? Yeah, you, you the worst thing Worst thing is you, you fail and you fall down and and stuff. But the, the most important thing is being able to get back up, you know, and that's one thing that I've learned on, on my journey over the last couple of years is I, I'll always have, I'll have bad days and I have good days. And the thing is there is times where I I have been depressed on, a, on a, some days and, you know, and it's just recognizing, it, understanding it, knowing right. Today's a bad day and, or something's happened or been triggered by something. And it's not trying not to let it linger, not let not letting it fester, you know. And and so when one bad day turns into two and three and four, then you have to really look at it and say, okay, there's something really wrong here. So when I I recognise that bad, that I am having a bad day, it is trying not to let it roll into the next day, and it's just taking each day as it comes, you know.
0: How do you find that you take yourself out of that sort of bad day? Um, for me, I, I'm. I'm lucky to have I have two two beautiful
1: sons, you know, and that's that keeps me me occupied. I have a great partner who supports me in all this, um. But for me, training, um, I'm in college as well, studying to be a counsellor. So that that's a lot in itself, you know. That's mentally tough. That's mentally. And physically draining when you you're constantly learning, and it's it's all about self learning about yourself, and that so you can provide a, a better service to people. You know, because when you can understand yourself, well, then you can you might be able to understand other people, and you can you might be able to help other people. You know.
0: So you're learning to be a counselor for uh, mental health. Is are you actually discovering that one of the problems with mental health is that it's actually oversimplified? You know, I remember in secondary school, there were these um, campaigns, if you like, if you're having a bad day, talk to your friend. And that's perfect if you're having one bad day, as you say, when it manifests itself into something more clinical, perhaps, and it gets more serious. Actually, rather than just talking to your friend, you may need to seek some form of more experienced, more qualified help. Yeah, well, absolutely.
1: You know, and and that's one thing that I do is... um... I, I you obviously have to go go to counseling. When you're when you're studying to be a counselor, there's so many hours you have to build up it doing your own personal counseling. And I have to admit, that's the best thing that I've ever done was after um I went through my struggles and, and the suicide attempt was getting into counseling. You know, because you can really open up to yourself. And and another thing that I've started to do was journaling. Like journaling on good and bad days, but most importantly trying to journal on the good days. You know, because what happens then is, if you're constantly writing negative about yourself, you're constantly going to think negative. You know, and when you're writing, if when you're journaling and you're having a good day, is to make sure that you put that down. Make sure you put down what you've done that day, so that way, then when you're having a bad day, you look, you can look back and say, right, on the twenty fourth of June, uh, I spoke to Killian, it was great. I had a great chat with him. I felt great afterwards. Okay, I'm going to give Killian a call. I'm going to have a chat with him. You know, And, and these sort of things. Um the most important thing is, is trying to just be in tune with yourself you know and um, and I would I would advise to talk to someone you know when, when you professionally but unfortunately yeah there is times where you do need medication you know it, and it's not always a quick fix when it comes it's not always oh yeah I'm just going to have a phone call there I'm going to go for a run that I clear my head as you said there is stuff that manifests there is stuff that triggers us uh, as young kids the, the trauma of that like losing a parent we could lose like a child, it could be anything, you know, and, and that's that's trauma that we can never really truly get over. Um, but it's it's being able to handle that and building that resilience in ourselves that when um she hits the fan, sorry, excuse my French, um, that we're able to handle it. You know, and the more resilient we become as people, the easier it is to handle the stuff that's shown us.
0: Just go back to your own personal battle. You went through this pretty difficult period where you were effectively homeless, living in your car. At that point, is there just a sort of an instability in your life? Um, I, I
1: had an accumulation of things going on, you know, and um, looking back on it now, it was an accumulation of small little things that, as I said, I just kept letting faster and faster and faster, and the longer I kept putting it on the long on the long finger, the worse it was getting. You know, and it was stuff like that that really, really, eventually got out of control. And I wasn't dealing with it. wasn't talking to anyone. No one knew what was going on. You know, and that and that for me was the most difficult part. Was I was constantly putting on an act. And I've heard, like you, you, hear about people talking about this imposter syndrome that pe- that people put on this act that you do, and that was me. like you can. I was I, I was putting on an act for people. You know pretending that everything was all right when, when truly I was hurting inside, you know. And as I said, that accumulation of things eventually uh, for me came to a head and I just, my own mind went weak, you know, and not went weak, but I was, I was really in a dark place, you know.
0: Well, as you talk about that sort of putting on the mask, even during the time when you were living in your car, you were still playing for Ballymon.
1: Like th- that must be difficult. Um, yeah, well, that it was, you know, and uh, because everything was affected, you know, when when you think that you have everything under control, there's ways of expressing it, you know, when when you're not. And for me, I was expressing it in the wrong ways, and I was getting, I was really ratty playing matches and stuff. Um, I was getting aggro and just doing things I wouldn't normally do, you know, and. Eventually that again, that takes its toll as well you know and eventually I end up I had to walk away from football. Mm. And this before the suicide attempt, I had to walk away because I, I wasn't in a good place and I knew I wasn't in a good place. but again I still
0: never reached out for help. Did people look for an explanation as to why you decided to give up football? Um, I, I don't think I
1: think people knew I was going through a lot of stuff. I don't think you realized how bad that was. Um and I think again it was the act that I said. I just and I just said oh, look, I need a break and it wasn't right for me in that moment in time. And I had to take a step back just for my own self. And in truth, it was probably the worst thing that I could have done. Did because you
0: that, did you find that you were sort of separated from your support network?
1: Yeah, I absolutely I, I pulled myself away, you know. I became really, really depressed then because I, I had an illness that I, I got, ended up getting really ill then a short time afterwards. And I was literally, I was homebound for about eight weeks. I was out of work and stuff. So I had no outlet. I was, at, I was stuck at home and um, that really, really took its toll. And that really, when then dark thoughts really came in
0: then. like, As you say, you were going to take your own life. And I want to read out this extract from an interview you gave because It is very, very powerful stuff. So you said, I was living in my car, going training with Ballymun, still playing football. None of them knew I was homeless. Nobody at work knew. I'd shower at training and go back to the car. I'd go out and go to parties because I didn't want to go back to the car. I had nowhere to go. That continued for three or four months. Then in the summer, it was Wednesday evening around 5 p.m. I finished work, there was no training, and I went straight to the park. I got food, a Chinese or something, ate that, and put the seat back to sleep. I woke up around 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. It was pitch black. I could hear sounds around me. I broke down and just started crying. I was like, I can't do this anymore. I turned on the engine and was going to drive the car into a wall. For some reason, my phone lit up and the screensaver was a picture of my son, Quaylon. That's what stopped me. I imagine that you are overly delighted or that might not even be appropriate that you did stop yourself.
1: Um, That was the first, and and that's a miscorrection, that was the first time I I thought about attempting suicide. And it wasn't for another, it was six months later that I actually did attempt it. So I did attempt suicide on the 27th of February in 2020. Um, And that was the July or June or July beforehand. And so these things... Yeah, like it, when, I th- when I think back, I, th- I think how, how how bad I was and what was really going on and how no one noticed and how I was able to hide it for so long, you know, and that's the most difficult thing about it, you know. And But what now what I'm trying to do is, is trying to create something. I have created an outlet for people, and the reason why I created an outlet for people was to try and, and make sure that no one finds themselves in my position ever again you know and and look if, if i can help one person with the group that i've set up and uh, will then it'd be it'd be a success and that group has been going on now for about uh, 14 months and yeah probably longer and, and look is it has been a real success and it's really helped people you know and and that's i was trying to give something give back to people you know and show that there is people, there is that support network for people. There is that outlet that you don't have to struggle in silence. And and look, if you're at rock bottom, and this is one of the best pieces of voice I was given, the strongest base anyone can start at is rock bottom. Why? Because the only place you can go is up. You know, and that's the most important thing.
0: Did you find it was difficult to open up after the uh, attempt on your life, or who did you open up to? Was it a particular person or an organization? Um, I think
1: originally after after it happened, uh, I went to PA House. So uh, after the the attempt and I was in hospital and stuff, I was hospitalised, and so then two days later, then I was sitting in a chair with, meeting with PA House. So it was, and then I was with them for about six or seven weeks, and then afterwards, then the GPA got involved and, um. They got me a counter. I got a counsellor through the GPA and stuff, and, and yeah, I, my my journey then really took off then, you know, and if it wasn't for those initial first meetings with PA House, getting to understand my feelings and getting to understand the thoughts that I was having, I wouldn't have been able to move forward in my own journey, you know.
0: As you say, I am happy to hear that you're doing better now. Ted's Open Mic was the group that you founded to support mm-hmm. people with mental health difficulties. How do people find details or get in touch with you? Um, yeah, so Ted's Open Mike is,
1: is a, a virtual repair support group for people suffering with their mental health. Uh, you don't even have to be suffering with your mental health. You can come on and just have a listen, have a chat and, or, and listen to people. And I have, do have guests on and stuff to share their own stories, share their own experiences. So uh, if people want to get in contact, you can email me at, at gmail.com. There's an Instagram page, Ted's Up Mike, and then I also have my own Twitter page, which is just my, my name, Ted Format. They can find me on Twitter as well, and and all the, the information for the group is on there. It's a, there's also a podcast, Ted's Up Mike, and Spotify and all um podcasts out listen as well if people want to have a listen and, and there's some great great stories there, some great journeys. Um, there's a great one with again Jim Gavin. There's one with Paddy. Um, there's a Ken Egan and stuff like that and, and there's some, fast, some fantastic people that have got in and, and tried to help me grow it you know and, and there is there's a lot more that's only the beginning of this group you know and that's that's the exciting thing about it there's a lot more that this can grow and I'm hoping to grow it this year Um, I know we're halfway through the year but I think um the second half of the year is going to be really exciting for me when it comes to the open mic and stuff so Ted, thanks very much. No worries at all. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me.